Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner Brett Boone as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. On this special episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with Baseball Hall of Famer Bert Blylevin. Enough talk! It's time for action! And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone. And today on the program, we sit down with a man whose career spanned 23 years in the big leagues. He's a two-time World Series champion. He ranks fifth all-time in strikeouts, and he was elected into the Baseball Hall of Fame in 2011. Ladies and gentlemen, Bert Blylevin. Bert, thanks for coming on the show. I hear hear the uh, applause right there. Well, first of all, Brett, I think you have to say our birthdays are the same, too. April 6th. Yes, they are. And and our names are similar. And our names are similar. (laughs) But they're just not. (laughs) So, so Bert, we were talking earlier, you just became a grandfather. Yeah, grandfather for the 10th time. Congratulations. Uh, Thank you. My uh, stepson and he and his wife just delivered a baby over Miami, a little Alan. That uh, came in at, uh, I believe, in, uh, six pounds, seven ounces. So we're very, very happy. Uh, it's, a quite, it's a nice day today. And it's also my mother-in-law's birthday. She's 93 years old today. We just uh, came back and visited her for a couple hours. So kind of cool to have a grandbaby the same uh, day that uh, born on uh, my grandmother 93 years ago. Very cool. Very cool. Chris Berman, all right, and, and I'm sure this you heard it as a kid. Bert won't be home, Bly Levitt. First time you heard it from Berman. <laughs> what were your thoughts? Were you thinking, all right, all right, Berman, I've heard that growing up my whole life, or did you think pretty cool? Well, you know what? I had a chance over the years to meet Chris Berman, and he actually told me that that's one of his favorite, you know, nicknames for somebody, Bert be home by 11, and being a starter pitcher, Brett, you know, I was usually home by 11, whether I was out of the second inning or we went nine innings, uh, you know, that, uh, that was kind of a cool name that Chris Berman put on me. Born and raised in the Netherlands. I'm sorry. No, born in the Netherlands for your early childhood. You were raised in Garden Grove, California. Um, just take me through your childhood. What, what was it like young Bert Blylevin growing up? Well, Brett, you know what? We really didn't know anything about baseball. Uh, you know, I was two years old when we went from Holland to Canada uh, in Saskatchewan, up in Saskatoon and Regina area. We spent four years. Uh, after the war, my dad wanted to come to Southern California, and my mother said she would follow him anywhere. So we ended up in Canada because it was easier for my parents to come through Canada than at that time after World War II then into the United States. So we spent four years there. And in 1957, we uh, immigrated. My dad went about four months ahead and got all the necessary papers for us to become, uh, you know, into the United States. Uh, we came into Orange County. Uh, we uh, kind of grew up in Paramount, California. And then we moved down to Garden Grove. Uh, and that's kind of where I started playing a little league in about third grade. So you know, soccer is a big sport. My dad took me to soccer games when I was younger, uh, you know, when we came to the United States. Uh, but 
then uh, all my friends, when I moved from Paramount to California to Orange County, Garden Grove, uh, they played Little League. So uh, I had a paper out in the morning, and I could throw that paper on the porch, and my mother finally allowed me to play Little League baseball. And I started off as a catcher, Brett. Uh, you know, and then I guess my coach saw that I was throwing a ball back harder to him than he was to me. So he said, do you want to pitch? And once I got that baseball in my hand on the mound, I loved it. And, uh, you know, the rest is history, I guess. You went to Santiago High School and yes. Dodger fan growing up, Scully, Koufax. Yeah, I was. Uh, Brett, you know what? Uh, I was a Dodger fan only because of my pops. My dad uh, became a, a big Dodger fan. He loved Frank Howard. Uh, of course, he was an outfielder, a huge man at that time, almost like an Eric Judge today, that type of size player that, uh, you know, could hit for a power. And my dad loved, um, you know, the Dodgers. And I would sit and listen to the ball games with us back in the, you know, 60s, late 50s, 60s. They didn't have a lot of games on TV. So I would keep score of my Little League scorebook when Koufax and Drysdale pitched. And I would write down the strikeouts uh, because that I felt, you know, I felt comfortable that way. And uh, lo and behold, I ended up third all-time in strikeouts as my career ended. But I think had the opportunity for my pops, and, and he passed away at 79 with Parkinson's, uh, what he meant to me uh, is incredible. He introduced me to the game of baseball. He was there at almost every game at San Diego High School. I signed out of Santiago High School in 1969 and uh, had an opportunity to, to get into the big leagues less than a year later. Yeah, you're a third-round pick uh, after your senior year at, at Santiago High School uh, by the Twins. And what 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 is interesting to me is, okay, we all know how the drafts go in 2021. Everybody's kind of labeled. You kind of have an idea. You can just – they can send you a chart. You know, it's, if you're the fifth pick in the in the fourth round, this is where you slot. But things were a lot different back when you were getting drafted. Um, your third round pick. How did those negotiations go back then? <laughs> you know what? I had just pitched the game over at uh, uh, I'm trying to think of the ballpark, but it was a North South All Star game, and. Uh, I had struck out eight of the nine batters I faced, and I was drafted by the Twins, as you mentioned, in the third round. Jesse Flores was a scout. Uh, he came to the house after, and they offered me $5,000 with schooling. And I know you went to USC, Brett, but uh, my dad looked at the Jesse Flores, and he said, schooling? In his Dutch accent, he said, God damn it, we barely got him out of high school, through high school. <laughs> so he said, no, he said, leave the house. He says, come back. And uh, the next day they came back with $15,000, which is probably double what my dad made raising seven kids in Southern California at the time. And I thought, you know what, if I don't make it, I can always come back and maybe go to a junior uh, college. I, I can maybe get into the service, which my older brother was in the Air Force. Uh, that was something that interested me. And then also I wanted to be a policeman or a fireman. Those were kind of my goals. To be a baseball player, I thought, you know, I'll try it. I'll hopefully do well. You don't know when you get drafted out of high school. Uh, lo and behold, uh, you know, it turned out pretty good for me. 
And and that's what's so cool about the game. I mean, it's a ama- well. Not only do we share the same birthday, but you just brought up that name to me, Jesse Flores. Uh, so I'm I'm in you know in uh, I went to El Dorado High School, which is close. For those of you listening yeah. to the Boone Podcast, uh, Bert and myself, our our high school years, we grew up in the same area. Obviously, di- different eras, uh, but the same you know <laughs> same place on the map. And I was a 29th round pick. I, you know, I was going to USC uh, by the Minnesota Twins, and that same man came into my living room, Jesse Flores, and my dad had a different answer than your dad had. <laughs> well, you know what? Jesse was a great scout. Did, did Myron Pines, do you remember that name? As I, re- I remember that name, he- but but he wasn't. It was Jesse Flores, and then he had somebody else with him, and for the life of me, I can't remember who that other scout was. Yeah, but Myron Pines was with Seattle. Was he with Seattle when you ended up signing with the Mariners? I signed with the Mariners out of college, and Myron—that's yeah. that's maybe why it's ringing a bell. Myron Pines might have been uh, with the Mariners at the time I signed, but but it wasn't—he wasn't the guy that drafted me. Well, you know what, Brett? Now we're talking about scouts, and that one thing in the game today, I feel sorry for a lot of these guys, like. You know, Jesse Flores is no longer with us. I Hopefully, Meyer and Pines is. But so many guys in the game of baseball that have dedicated their whole career on looking for talented kids are now out of the game because of all the analytics that are in the game. Uh, it, it's really a shame that, uh, you know, you go around. And, you know, after my playing career, I had a chance to broadcast for 25 years with the Minnesota Twins. And I would see so many of my former teammates and friends that, uh, you know, became scouts after their playing career. And sad to say, a lot of that's taken away now. It is. And, and I don't know. I've, I've thought about it. I've, I've, I've looked at it from different angles. I, I understand, Bert, for me, you know, I'm a purist. I think you're a purist too. We, you know, we, yeah. we come from it. We come from different generations, but a generation of kind of let's go. <laughs> Post post every fifth day for you as a pitcher. Post every day for me. The game is just different, and and I think we we have we'd be naive if we weren't weren't willing to move forward with technology and analytics. But I don't think you can replace what you were talking about. The Myron Pines of the world, the Jesse Flores of the world. Shoot, my grandpa Ray Boone, you know, uh, played yeah. in the big leagues for thirteen years, but then was a scout for the Boston Red Sox until the day he died. And those just great baseball men that that have sat at thousands and thousands of game and have an eye for talent. I don't think you can truly replace that. I, I think the analytics can help, and I think it can make uh, the current crop of scouts' job a little bit easier by by having that data before they even go to see see a prospect. But I don't think you can ever replace that. And and I think. You know, for me, I think that you're going to see as the as the years move forward, I think that pendulum has swung really to the analytics. But I think you're going to see it coming back to the middle because there is a a magic formula in there with with data technology, but yet good baseball, smart men out there, uh, you know, watching these prospects because there is something to that to that human element. I don't think you can get with just a computer. Well, I think, Brett, you know, you're a three-time All-Star, three-time Gold Glove winner, three-time postseason. You know, I know you went to postseason, which is going on right now with the Reds, the Braves, and the Marlins. Excuse me, the Mariners. You know, 
can you, you can look at all the numbers you want, but you know what? I, I was born for some reason, maybe Dutch stubbornness, but I had a big heart. I had a lot of determination. I knew what I needed to do. And I don't, didn't need somebody from Harvard to tell me that my curveball, you know, maybe was this type of spin rate. I knew when, when I made a You know it was pitch. good. Right. And it just, it's, it's sad to me the way the game has gone. Because especially as a former starter that had a lot of shutouts, had a lot of complete games in my career, won 287 games, pitched almost 5,000 innings, that I see these pitchers today, and it starts in the minor leagues, they're conditioned to go five or six innings, and that just frustrates the heck out of me. And I'm glad I'm not broadcasting anymore, to be honest with you. <laughs> well, I'll give you a scenario, and you tell me if, if you think you think it's accurate. Today's game, there's so much made of, you know, third time through the order. This, But I'm going to I'm going to play devil devil's advocate. I'm going to be your skipper. I'm going to be Bert Blylevin's manager. And it's the sixth inning and you're pitching a good game. But my analytics say, hey, this time through the lineup, you know, it, it's better to hand the ball off to my power bullpen. Now that I put a lot of money into because that's what they do in today's game is there's a lot of money put in that bullpen where years and years ago, that's not where they spent their money on that, on that relief cord that they do now. But for me as a manager, I want to take that mount. I want to know that's not Joe Smith. That's Burt Blylevin. That's not, you know, a regular guy. That's Steve Carlton on the mound. I think as a manager, I should go out. I got to look you in the eye. I know you. We live together. We, you know, if, if I'm the manager and you're the pitcher, we have 162 together. So, so we're like a family. I, I need to be able to look at you and see that look because I know that look is get off my mound. This is my game. And when you Amen. give me that look as a manager, I can walk off the mound and go, he's got it. You might give me a different look on a different day with a different set set of circumstance. I I might say, Bert, give me the ball. We're going to the bullpen. And that's how I look at it. And we can't lose that human element because you're right. It it's the makeup of the individual. Not everybody is going to have the same set of rules at the big league level. This is a big boys game. Certain guys, Hey, you're going to give them a little more leash and they've earned that leash. And they've with, with the, the things they've done in the game. But I think, I think we need to get back to that too. This is a, a human game with human elements. These are not machines out there. They're real people. And uh, I, that's what I'd like to see more of. No, we don't just make this move because the computer says to make this move. We, we put some more elements to the final decision, if you will. I mean, there's and, so and that's where I kind of am. Go at. Into it, Brett. Yeah. There's so many elements that go into it. First of all, I had a lot of managers that told me that they hated coming out to the mound to to try to talk to me or maybe take me out because I did not want to come out. Uh, You know, you can, Tom Kelly, you know, we won the world series in 87. He told me face to face, he said, I hated come walking out to the mound because you know, you're, you're, you, you know, your, your mouth is drooling and you're just, you're just, (laughs) you know, you're into the ball game and, you know, leave me alone basically. But, I think, Brett, I, and I understand the pitch. I don't understand the pitch count. I never will. Um, you know, when you, it's, it's the pitches that you have sometimes under dress. You know, if I'm going through my first three innings, I, every inning I have two men on, I have to make a good 
pitch to get out of the inning. All of a sudden, it's in the fifth or sixth inning, and I've thrown 100 pitches, whatever. <clears throat> Leave me alone. I'm still okay. I don't believe in the pitch count at all. But I think I think I think you hit it on the head earlier when you said these kids from from a young age they're conditioned to do one thing. They put so much emphasis on the bullpen, and and now we have power arms, and they're built for one inning at a time. Very you know specialist role. It it, it started off back in the day where that bullpen was a bunch of starters that wouldn't weren't good enough to start. Then then we got into the era of of the Bruce Suters of the world and and the Dennis Eckersleys, and it became a you know that closer was that expert. Now, now you've got guys from the seventh on, onto the ninth, maybe even the sixth, and they have individual roles. Um, if the game's going to change like that for me, I just think I still want my pitchers to have the mindset of, okay, it's 2021 and we don't complete too many games now, but I, it's, I should have the mindset of completing this game tonight. And if maybe tonight I go eight, I go eight but I should have that mindset of I'm going nine. I think that's still where you're going to find your elite, elite starters that take the ball and, and don't expect to come out of the game. You see that. You see the Scherzers, you know, uh, who's pitching in the postseason, I believe, tonight, uh, you know, against against the uh, Giants. And you see, you know, Verlanders when they're healthy. You see the Coles. Uh, I did not like what Cole did coming out you know, in the third inning and basically you could read his lips by saying I'm out. Uh, you know, you have to make adjustments out there. That's pitching. And, you know, I know he's a thrower at times, but um, I, I didn't like him not having that little fire. They're paying him a lot of money to get, you know, and I know your brothers, you know, with the Yankees, I, those are the fight. Those are the fights you want as a pitcher to be out on that mound in postseason and give it all you got. When I see the word out coming of his mouth, I was really upset because I thought he was stronger than that. But, you know, it is what it is. You move on. Um, you know, hopefully he'll continue and have a great career, which he's got outstanding stuff. But it comes down to integrity. It comes down to fire. It comes down to so many elements that, you know, you want to go out there and be the best you can. And if somebody takes that ball away from you, boy, you, you better fight to keep that ball. Yep. All right. Getting back to, to uh, Bert Blylevin. We got uh, – you, you signed in the third round, Minnesota Twins. And as you mentioned, you got to the big leagues quick. And, and I don't think this is a – you know, in today's game, I, I'm seeing a lot of young talent, the Acunas of the world, the Tatises, the the Sotos. Uh, the list goes on and on. The Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Uh, these kids get into the big leagues when they were 19 and 20. You know, Mike Trout and, and Bryce Harper a few years back kind of set that trend. Uh, in my day, uh, it was a, a Ken Griffey Jr. that, that you know, that – that was the anomaly. That was the wow. That doesn't happen too often, but but he's one of the greatest players still to this day, I think, ever to play. But nowadays, you know, when I see the 19 years old as a starting pitcher, it very, very rarely happens. You see a, a, a top number one pick come out of high school. Usually you're going to be down on the farm, even the great ones for two or three years. But I've interviewed a few guys on the podcast recently, and, and I'm, it seems like I'm getting hit with this. It's the same. I had Dwight Goodnot. He got the big leagues at 19. Vita Blue. 
he got to the big leagues in 19. Brett Saberhagen, and, and recently I had uh, Steve Carlton on the program, and, and he's, he got to the big leagues when he was 19. And I'm thinking, wow. And then Burt Blylevin's coming on, 19. And, and I want to tell the people out there listening how rare that is and, 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 and how awesome it is. But for you, how was it? I mean, a year and a half ago, you're pitching in in Garden Grove in a high school, like you said, North-South game. All of a sudden, you're in the big leagues. Take me through that, and were you ready for that that quick? I think I was ready. You know, more of the, the mentally and physically part, I was. I know when I signed with the Twins, my dad, uh, Joe Blylevin, bet – uh, actually, scout Jesse Flores bet my dad a steak dinner that I would be in the big leagues less than two years. He saw something in me that he thought I could get to the big leagues in a in a quick way. Uh, when I signed at 18 years old out of high school, I went to Florida and I, I did okay. I went from rookie ball to single A my first year. I played instructional league. Uh, we won everything in the uh, instructional league when games were meant something in the instructional league back in the in the late 60s, early 70s. Uh, I was 15 and two my first year, and I got invited to spring training as an 18 year old uh, just to rub shoulders with Jim Cott, Jim Perry, Louis T. on Dave Boswell. Those were the four starters at the time. And my manager in instruction league was a guy named Ralph Rowe. And he took me to AAA after I got sent out of spring training. Bill Rigney was a manager. He quotes, it says that, you know, he fell in love with me just watching me pitch and stuff like that. Well, I got to, went to AAA and then Louis T on day Boswell, both got hurt toward the end of May in 1970. And they needed somebody to come up and cause we pitched every fourth day back then. Uh, to come up and they didn't want to call me up because I was, I just turned 19 years old, but finally they couldn't, I guess they couldn't make a trade, whatever, but I got to call up and, uh, you know, lo and behold, I'm in the big leagues at, uh, at 19 years old. And I, I think I took advantage of it. The American league put pitcher of the year in 1970. Yeah. You go 10 and nine, uh, 71, you go six and five as a tw- 16 and 15. I'm sorry. As a 20 year old, you have a two eight. I mean, and I was looking, you know, doing my research. I- I'm looking at your numbers every year. And I'm going, he had a two eight, a two seven, a two five, 73. You make the all-star team, your first all-star game. He had a two six, a three Oh, a two eight seven. And I'm going his worst year. He had a three one <laughs> in that, in that twins, you know, your, your twins career, that early twins career. And you made one all-star team. And, and it's kind of been the history of Burt Blylevin. And, and we'll get to it later, the Hall of Fame and all that. But but I'm looking at this and I'm going, why isn't Burt like in the Hall of Fame right away? Pitched 23 years. He's fifth all time. And and I guess I chalked it up as it, life isn't always fair. And, and But just looking at your numbers, I'm going, how is Burt Blylevin only a two-time all-star? That's what, that's what floored me. It was 1973. You go 20 and 17, 2-5. Uh, how was that first all-star game for you, speaking of all-star games? Uh, it was pretty good. I mean, uh, I ended up pitching. I was supposed to pitch the fourth inning, and Catfish Hunter ended up uh, pitching. I think he went into the second inning or third inning. Uh, second inning, and line drive hit off his thumb. Ken Holzman. I was supposed to pitch after him, which was supposed to pitch the third. He's in the game on the second inning. And all of a sudden they called down about five minutes before and said, Holzman said, he's done. You're in the game. I mean, it's like, 
whoa, 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 I did, wait a minute, can I warm up? So I, I didn't get a chance to warm up. I was, you know, that year I pitched, what, 325 innings uh, for the Twins that year, and I won 20 ball games. But the All-Star game, I ended up getting the loss in that game. But uh, this is exciting. And I think, Brett, I have the longest tenure between All-Star appearances from 1973. My next one was 1985. So 12 years between appearances. And sometimes it's a numbers game. You know, you might have two or three guys on your ball club that deserve to let it go. But then every club has to be represented, even though I know one year with the Angels, I was like 12 and three at the All-Star break, but didn't make the All-Star squad. That's okay. That didn't bother me. It's not about making an All-Star team. It's about how can you make your team better and win every time you're out there. And I can honestly say for 22 years, I can look at every start. Oh, there's a lot of bad ones. But my job was to keep my club in the game. And if I could do that, then, you know, when I was younger, if I lost a game one to nothing or two to one, which I did a lot, by the numbers that you said, my ERA, but I was basically a 500 pitcher at that time. You know, my six years in Minnesota before I got traded to Texas, I didn't get a lot of run support, but I think what that did is it made me a better pitcher because if I lost one to nothing or two to one, guess whose fault it was? It was me. That's the way I looked at it. And I worked harder to get those shutouts, which I ended up with 60, to get the complete games, which I ended up with 242. That was the inner drive that I had, that the, that the Carltons had, and, you know, the, the Seavers and, you know, the Gaylord Perrys and the Ferguson Jenkins. You, you can't teach inner drive. And I see these young kids today not having that. I'm in spring training for three weeks with the spring, with the twins. And I see these kids not conditioning the way that we did. It's a different game, and I don't like it. You know, I'm the pitching coach for the Dutch team in the WBC. I've been there three times, 2009, 2013, 2017. And, you know, we beat the Dominican Republic in 2009. We we went to the finals in 2013 in San Francisco. And in Dodger Stadium, we went to the finals. I had young kids with me. I was a pitching coach. You know what I taught them, Brett? The Ted Williams hitting chart. You ever seen the Ted Williams hitting chart? If he said no. if every pitch was down and away to him, he would have hit 230, 240, 250. I was known for my curveball, but my control of my fastball was the key. And I could hit that corner down and away to a righty and lefty, and I could pitch hard inside talking to Don Drysdale at the age of 19 in the Anaheim dugout and talking about aggressiveness, pitching hard inside. Don't be afraid to hit somebody once in a while. That in, intrigued me, and that's what I carried throughout my 22-year career in the big leagues. Yeah, and I think you, you hit it on it again. Uh, and as a hitter, uh, people ask me, oh, what's the toughest? You know, it, 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 there's not a toughest pitch out there. Yeah, Burt Blylevin in his heyday with that curveball. That was a tough pitch to hit. Randy Johnson in his heyday, his heater's tough to hit, especially if now, it's located. But you brought, you brought it up. It's the best pitch is, was, always will be a, 
a well-located fastball. And that's coming from a hitter. It's like, if you can locate that fastball to me and get a, get, get strike one, that opens up. Now you can go anywhere you want to go, but if you can't locate that fastball, you're going to be in trouble. It makes it easy to sit on your other pitches. Uh, and I don't trust, Oh, just because you call for fastball away, who knows where this is going to be? Best pitch going, like I said, will be, always has been a well-located fastball. And that's for, for a guy that, like you said, known for your curveball and, and had one of the best, one of the best all time. Uh, you're moving on to Texas. You get traded from from the Minnesota Twins. Seventy six. You finish with a two eight, and seventy seven. You, you pitch your uh, your one and only no hitter. Take me through that, and then I want to talk about you flipping off the camera. <laughs> that was prior to that, Brett. Uh, it, it, you know, it was funny. In, in nineteen seventy seven, I had I was pitching in Minnesota, and I slipped on the mound and pulled my right groin. And I was put on a disabled list for the first time in my career. And I wanted to come back and pitch at least one more time. Uh, Billy Hunter was the manager of the Texas Rangers at the time. And when they came to Anaheim, because I was rehabbing at home, basically, uh, in, in Villa Park and in Southern California. Uh, and I went and I, I talked to Billy. I said, I'd like to pitch one more time. Uh, and the season was uh, September 22nd. He gave me a start and a pitch and a no hitter, re-aggravating my groin again in the eighth inning. And I threw nothing but curveballs because I could shorten my stride and ended up getting that no hitter, the only one that I had. And my last outing as a Texas Ranger. And then they uh, ended up trading me to the Pittsburgh Pirates, which was a blessing in disguise that winter. And that's right in my wheelhouse. I love it. I've had a, a bunch of guys from, from that generation, the 70s, which for me growing up as a kid, uh, you get traded to the Pirates in 78, you stay there through 80. You know, I'm an eight, nine-year-old kid, and, and that's what I remember. You know, I, I've been pretty fortunate in my life to see a lot of things and, and be a lot of places, uh, you know, in the game, see a lot of big league games from the from the dugout, from the clubhouse. But, man, those those – Late 70s teams, those Pirates, those Reds, those Dodgers, when, when dad was playing for the Phillies, that, that was my wheelhouse. It's like, oh, the big bad buckos are coming to town. I'm eight or nine. You know, me and Aaron are, Aaron's getting the, he's making a playing field in the, in the living room and he's going to, he's going to announce the game and he's going to play it out. But I, oh, it's so fun for me. I had Dave Parker on recently and, I remember those Pittsburgh teams, and it was Madlock and Stargell and Tim Foley, uh, Kent DeColvey, Marino. Yeah. Oh, Phil Garner, Sanguian, Chuck Tanner's your manager. You got 52 different uniforms and, and 10 different hats, and you guys were mean. It's like Bly Levin's coming to town, and, and you got uh, Bibby, I think, was on that staff. But uh, tell me about Candelaria those. Larry, I was there. Bruce Keaton, Cand- you know. Yeah. Keaton, oh, Bruce. He's another brawler. He's another brawler. <laughs> and and it's funny to me because I was talking to Dad, uh, and I told him I said uh, I'm having Bird on the program. He goes, Oh, I got some stories about Bird. He said, Ask him about that fight we had in. Uh, it was Pittsburgh yeah. and, and the Phillies, and he goes, Yeah, and he told me he said bring- Brett. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, what? What's your? I want to hear what your pop said first. Well, I, I'm going to let you tell the story, but he told me this. He said, "Brett, and and you, 
you know my dad and everybody that knows my dad he's not a timid man he's a he's a very uh he's not a big fighter, fighter but he won't back down from a fight so he said right. let Bert tell the story but just i'm gonna let you know brett i got in between dave parker and willie stargell and they looked at me and they said bob you're in a bad spot right now <laughs> he said i definitely <laughs> am all right you take it from there tell me the story all right, well, let me, let me tell you. I'm pitching in Philadelphia in 19. I don't know what year it was. It didn't matter. But uh, Mike Schmidt is up. And, you know, Mike Schmidt, you know, when the, like you mentioned, the Pirates and the Phillies didn't see eye to eye. Well, I threw a breaking ball that Mike had to kind of duck down, and he pointed his bat out at me. It was like ball three. I didn't think anything of it other than the next pitch was up and in, almost knocked him back. I didn't hit him. Okay, so now he goes to walking down to first base, and we're talking about our mothers, you know. And of course. Enough, then, yeah, the next inning, I come up, and they had a left-handed pitcher. I believe his name was Kevin Sachet. I remember. And the first pitch, he drills me in the hip. Well, I said, well, screw this. I'm going out. And I think your dad was catching. And uh, I believe Doug Harvey was the umpire. Well, I went out and I threw my helmet down towards shortstop. And next thing I know, I'm out on the mound. And I got a piece of his chin. That's all I remember. Because <laughs> of being a left-handed pitcher, I knew that the left glove, his, his glove would come first. And then I got a piece. And then I got pulled back by Bob Skinner. And all hell broke loose as far as throughout the field. I mean, guys were just swinging left and right. And uh, be honest with you, I, this is a great story because Pete Rose was on that ball club. I went to Japan a couple of times with Pete Rose. Well, I'm being held back by, and I'm not going to do anything. I already made my point. And I'm looking across, and there's Bob Walk, Dickie Knowles, and John Vukovic was a coach. And I'm looking at them, and they're, like, staring at me. And I know that Dick Rufin is a red belt or black belt in karate, and I know I don't want any piece of him. So I'm telling Bob, you know, I'm saying some nasty words to them, and I'm saying, Bob, don't let me go. Hold on to me, please, because they'll <laughs> kill me. So the next the fight breaks out. We're all okay. I end up continuing to pitch the inning. You know, I finished the uh, – you know, I went out there again. I don't remember how the game – ended up whether I lost or not, whatever. Anyway, the next day, because I was a conditioned, I ran distance a lot. I would not, didn't want to run out in Philly out of the stadium at veteran stadium. I ran in this field around the field. I got there about one o'clock and I'm running about my fifth or sixth lap around. And I notice all of a sudden there's a body in the, since in the Philadelphia dugout and I have headphones on, and I'm walk, I'm running by, and I see it's Vukovic, the first base coach. And he says something to me, but I run faster, right? So I'm going now. I'm going around again. I come back again. Now there's two bodies, and I'm just thinking, oh my God, they're going to come out. They're going to kick my butt, and they're going to find me face down in the dirt somewhere. And I run by again. I see that Pete Rose is in the dugout, and, and Vuk doesn't say anything. And I, I thank Pete for that because. Uh, you know, I think Vuk wanted to come out and just uh, challenge me to a fight, which he probably would have won. But, uh, you know, in the heat of battle, that that stuff happens. And uh, that's what I think the game was back then. You respected each other, but then 
you didn't talk to each other. You didn't care about the other team. You only cared about your team. Yeah. I mean, when I played, it's, I don't really want to know you if you're on the other team. I want to hate you from afar. I used to, and I've talked about this before on the show. I didn't, I didn't, I, the, the nights that, you know, in, in the off season, sometimes as players, we have functions to go to and, and you meet players from the longer you're in the league, you meet, you know, your opponents, but you meet them in the off season in a, in a social environment and, and a guy you might've really not cared for on the other team. You sit down with him, you have dinner and you get up and you go, damn, he, he's actually a good guy. I didn't like that. Cause yeah. I didn't like to like you. <laughs> I wanted to hate you. I, yeah. I feel like I lost an edge. If I had a soft side, like I don't want to smile at you, Bert, when you're on the mound. No, no, no. You're trying to kick my butt. I'm trying to kick your butt. I didn't like any of that. Yeah. I, li- I like taking care of business on the field and in the off season. Yes, we, we've got to be gentlemen and, and, and do what we've got to do at functions or whatnot. But being friends is, is for when you're retired. Then you could laugh at your antics that you put together on the field. That's just at least where I'm coming from. All right. 79. Well, you know, and, ch- and I agree. I agree 100 percent with you, Brett. You know, when you're in the heat of battle, no matter you do, no matter what you do in life, you know, you want to be the best at what you do. And, you know, and, and, you know, we're talking, hopefully young kids are listening to this spot, you know, to your program right here. And, and, you know, it's, it's just a matter of going out and being the best you can. That's all it is, is have fun with it. If you're 12, 13, 14 years old, but once you sign, you want to be the best you can. You want to be in the top of the world. 1979 world champions, uh, Pittsburgh pirates, first world championship, uh, parade, uh, take me through how special that was. Well, we're playing the Baltimore Orioles and, uh, you know, we won, uh, the first game, you know, we lost the first game in Baltimore. We actually got snowed out the first day. Uh, Bruce Keeson started game one. The Orioles ended up winning the ball game. I started game two against Jim Palmer. We ended up winning the ball game in 10 innings when uh, Manny Sanguin got a base hit to right field that scored Ed Ott. And Kent DeColby came in and closed it. Uh, Baltimore won the next two ball games. Uh, it's game five in Pittsburgh. We're down three games to one. Jim Rooker pitched five great innings. Uh, Mike Flanagan is pitching for the Philadelphia or to, for the uh, Orioles. Uh, we're down one to nothing. He Chuck Tanner pinch hits for Jim Rooker. Um, it's then I I get the call in from the bullpen. I end up pitching four shutout innings. Our offense finally starts to come alive. We end up winning the ball game seven to one. I get the win. We go to back to Baltimore. Uh, Rick Dempsey, the catcher for the Orioles, had come out and he said that he already had his World Series money, you know, spent on certain things, and that was hung in our clubhouse. And we ended up winning Game Seven, or excuse me, six and seven, jumping on the back of Willie Stargell, and uh, he took us to the promised land. And that was the first World Series team I was on. Very cool. Traded to the Indians, play there from 80, 81 to eighty five. And did I hear this right? You were threatening to retire then. Uh, nineteen eighty. Uh, what was that? No, that was nineteen eighty. Yeah, I, was, I think it was right, right after the eighty season. In, in, yeah, nineteen eighty. Uh, I had uh, twenty no decisions in nineteen seventy nine. I was twelve and five. We won the World Series. 
but I always thought in, you know, I pitched so many years in the American League. I averaged about 290 innings a year. In National League, I pitched about 240. I felt there was 50 innings that Chuck Tanner was not utilizing me. Uh, 1980, um, again, he had the quick hook, uh, which I never understood. You know, I understood that. I didn't understand why I had to pitch every six days. Uh, you know, and I felt, I just felt that the game was not any more fun. So I did. I did retire for, for about two weeks. And then, uh, you know, my, my senses came to reality when I didn't get that first that paycheck. And I thought, shit, I better go back to work. And uh, I did, and you know, I ended up getting traded that uh, that winter to the Cleveland Indians, and uh, you know, it uh, it's just part of the game. I was I was stubborn. My Dutch stubbornness came out, and uh, something I probably shouldn't have done, but I did. How was your time with in Cleveland? Do you enjoy it? You were an all you were an all star in '85. You won 19 games in '84. Um, how was that time for you in Cleveland? I enjoy Cleveland. I heard my first time really on my first time. I, I, in 1981, they had the strike and I'm pitched, uh, you know, I, I was pitching pretty good and we went on strike for two months. I came back and my first time out, I pitched nine innings, which I probably should not have. And I did, uh, ended up uh, tearing a fiber in my elbow, which I didn't know at the time. I continued pitching with it. In 1982, I went to spring training, uh, still felt it, uh, even though I, I thought I, it was okay. I threw a pitch to Ricky Henderson in 1982, I believe, on my fourth start. Heard a pop in my elbow, which I never had issues with before. Uh, my ligament uh, or my muscle completely tore off the uh, bone on my the funny bone, ended up on my forearm. I had surgery. I missed all of 82 came back in 83 did okay but my shoulder hurt me because i was favoring my elbow and then 84 i won 19 ball games and pitched you know 200 and whatever innings so yeah it uh you know you you don't like doing that as an athlete that especially a pitcher you know you get hurt like that you feel like you let your team down uh but uh you know it's it's part of uh, just playing the game. You're, if you can stay injury free, uh, you're lucky, very lucky. It's amazing. I sit here and, and then I realize that I can do the same thing, but I listen to you and you pitch so long in the big leagues. You've been in this game so long. You mentioned earlier uh, 25 years in the booth after your playing career, but the way you can just at verbatim, just go in 81 and 82 and 83. And I'm sitting here listening, going, how does he remember? But then if you were to ask me, Booney, you hit a home run in uh, <laughs> two, 2003. Yep. I remember it was off X and I think it was a one, two count. Uh, we right. just have that ability as players. It's, it's weird. You know, I can't remember where my car keys are, but I can remember, you know, <laughs> just little, little, t- but I love listening from, from your perspective and go, oh, look at how he just remembers 82, 83, felt a pop. Yep. He won 19, <laughs> 17, but it's cool, but it's what we do. Headed back to the twins, uh, kind of a coming home party for you. And, and you're going to, you're going to, uh, Get your second world championship there in 1987. How was that yeah, for you coming? I was excited to go back. I got traded in 1985 back to the Twins, and I knew that they had a lot of young, talented kids because I faced them. You know, a guy named Kirby Puckett, Ken Herbeck, Jerry Gaetti, Tom Bernanski, 
They had, you know, they made a trade for Greg Gagne at short, uh, Steve Lombardozzi at second, you know, uh, just things. I, I was excited because they needed pitching. Frank Viola was their ace, but Frankie at that time, and he, he will tell me, and he'll tell you that, you know, he, if guy made an error behind him, he kind of took it personally. He, he, you know, kind of whine a little bit. And when I came over, I said, you know, that, that stuff's got to stop. And he became, you know, a Cy Young Award winner in 1988 uh, because I think he did stop that. But in 1987, we had a great ball club. You know, Tim Laudner behind the plate, you know, Bernanski. We, we, I think what set up 1987 is we needed a leadoff hitter. And they made a trade late in spring training to get Dan Gladden. And he really set the tone uh, for that year. Even though we only won 85 ball games, we were playing good at the end of the year. We defeated the Tigers in 1987 to get to the World Series. You only had to play, you know, one team. Not like today, you got, you know, the Rays, which I'm living down in Fort Myers, Florida, you know, they've got to beat Boston tonight, and then they got to play the winner of Chicago and Houston and get to the World Series. It was only one team back then. We beat the Tigers in five games. We went and played the St. Louis Cardinals in 1987, and it was a really a miracle year for the Twins. No, no team in Minnesota had ever won a championship, and uh, we ended up winning and beating the Cardinals in seven games. Uh, you know, to win that first championship in the five-state area. So very, very proud to be part of that. Uh, was Molly on that team, Paul Molitor? No, he came later. Oh, he Molitor came later. But you, you mentioned Frank Viola. And I remember uh, it might have been my second or third day in the big leagues. You know, you come up and coming up from AAA. And and I remember facing Frank and they said, hey, Viola's got a pretty good changeup. And I remember after that game in Boston, he was with the Red Sox then. I came back and I said, the lefty changeups in AAA are not like that. And Frank was my first <laughs> reminder, like, all right, now I'm in the big leagues. And I faced the Rocket the next day. And, you know, that wasn't as tough for me as Viola. I just remember Viola's changeup. I'm like, and, and I knew him years later. He lived, uh, we lived, we were neighbors in, in the down in Orlando area. And I remember mm-hmm. telling him that story. But I remember Kirby. I remember my first time going to the Metrodome and watching Kirby hit and just listening to him during batting practice and that big, that big smile that he had on his face. It was just cool. You had, you know, you know, you talk about Gaetti over at third base and and Herbeck and oh, cool. You get your three thousand Ks that a year. Great ball club. You know, you know what, Brett? I think the biggest thing in that is you know, sweet music, Viola. He was undefeated, I think, that year in 1987 at home. Um, you know, he just, he just, he, he grew into a great pitcher. He really did. And it's sad to say that he got, ended up getting hurt when he was with the Boston Red Sox or the Mets, wherever he went. But um, he was a great competitor. He was a great battler and still a good friend today. Uh, 3,000 Ks. You reached that, that uh, pinnacle that year. Um, Goes back to your childhood, you know, when you were when you were uh, keeping score, and you said you always kept score, and you always kept track of the strikeouts. Something special for you when you get three thousand. Three thousand is kind of the bar for pitchers. Well, you know what? When I came up, Walter Johnson was the all-time strikeout leader, I believe, with three thousand five hundred seven. 
Uh, I have a baseball in my collection. I kept the baseball from all of my wins. Uh, as I moved up to, I have my 3,000 strikeout ball. But when I passed Walter Johnson, I thought, you know, that is awesome. Then it was Tom Seaver. When I retired, I was third all time. Uh, I always thought that Walter Johnson's 3,507 strikeouts would last forever. And then came along Nolan Ryan, you know, which almost doubled what he did. But no, that that was exciting. I, I did it against the Oakland A's. I I believe I needed like seven or eight strikeouts going in into the ball game to get three thousand. I ended up with fifteen that that night. But uh, yeah, it was it was a nice accomplishment, I guess. The bottom line is we won the ball game. That that was probably more than more than important than uh, you know getting the three thousand strikeouts. After that world championship, you're uh, after the 88 season. I'm sorry. You head to the angels close to home, close to where you grew up uh, 17 and five, your first year there. And in 90, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, you get hurt 91. You did not play. And that's going to take me to a story. And I want to know, do you remember going down? I was in Calgary, Canada. That was my, I played for the Calgary cannons, which was the triple. I remember this. Okay, so we got Burt Blylevin coming down to the minor leagues. And you know how it is as a minor leaguer. You think, oh, and, and I had known you from, you know, through family and through you play, playing against dad for years. And when a big leaguer comes down, let me tell people out there listening to the program, when a big leaguer comes down and, and one that's been playing as long as you've played, there's a buzz. Hey, there's a big leaguer coming down. And, and there's always a story behind it. Well, here's the story we heard. We heard Bly Levin's coming down. He's going to make a start. If he does well, he's going back to the big leagues. And if he doesn't, he's done. Now, I don't know whether that was true, whether that, whether that was false. But I'm telling you, that's what's going around our clubhouse. So I'll set right. the tone. Bert, Bert starts against my Calgary Cannon team. I don't know how many innings you got, but I remember, and I might have told you this story before, but the base is loaded I come up and I'm thinking to myself, okay, if I heard him here and the, the rumors are true that he's coming down here, he's got to do well. I, I, I think at the time it was, you know, you'd given up one or two runs, but good enough that, hey, you're getting your work in, you're getting out of here, you're going with the big club. And I stepped in the box and I think I got to a favorable count, like a 2-0 or a 3-1 count, bases loaded, two outs. I pop it straight up to center field. And I remember rounding the bases or, you know, rounded first, third out, take my helmet off. And you knew me at that time. Man, I was a red ass and everything pissed me off. I didn't get a hit every at bat. I was mad. And I remember thinking I wasn't that mad that day. I said, if Bert, if he's done right now and he goes back to the big leagues and finishes career the way it should be finished, then I'm okay with not hitting a grand slam against Burt Blylevin right there. Now, well, that's my version of the story, and I'm sticking to it. Is that your version? <laughs> I think I was well, your last minor league hitter ever. I, uh, I had shoulder surgery in 19. Actually, we had the strike. Same thing what happened in 1981. We had well, you played so long. Strike. You went through everything. Strikes, lockouts. Yeah. You've been through them all. 
Yeah, and I just, I know your dad, you know, was such a big part of Marvin Miller and, you know, getting Marvin Miller into where he finally got inducted into the Hall of Fame, you know, about a month ago, which I was very proud to be part of. But, uh, you know what, it, it comes down to wanting to be, want, never to look myself in the mirror and say, did I give it all I got? And at that time, I think I was 40 years old and I, I was fighting a shoulder that I had surgery because of the strike in 1990. I came back and pitched too much too soon and hurt my shoulder. Uh, and then trying to rehab in, in 1991 and 1992 is when we faced each other in Calgary. And I remember that. I don't remember exactly you know, I had bases loaded and whatever, but I do remember I was just trying to make a comeback to see if my arm could make it. And uh, I was pitching for the uh, uh, Edmonton Triplets. And uh, I ended up, I don't know if it was after that ball game or later on, I ended up getting recalled, uh, got to the big leagues and started off pretty good in 1992. But then my arm went south and I knew that it was time to maybe do something else in my life. Uh, after that season. Well, pretty storied career, 23 years. Uh, yeah, all right, we got to talk about it because you're, you're crony. Uh, I got a chance to play with him. I know I know he's he's a friend of yours, and, and you loved him when he was in Minnesota. Eddie Gordado. Uh, oh, but I think he Eddie. took up. I think he took on a lot of your traits, the hot foots and the constant <laughs> pranks. And Eddie, I just come in and Eddie, give me that look. I only played with him in Seattle for a year, played against him uh, quite a few years when he was in Minnesota. He was a great teammate, wasn't he? He's a great teammate. And I'd come in, you know, I'd come to the, come to, come to work every day and I'd walk in that locker room. And there's Gordado. And he's got that look on his face. You know, he'd never mess with a veteran player or anything like that, but he loved to, to take care of that pitching, that, that staff. And, and he had those young guys running around, but he's always up to something, you know, and he's got that look on his face like Booney. Wait, do you, wait, do you see what I got in store today? But he was always up to something <laughs> loosening in the clubhouse. That was kind of a Burt Blythe, Levin. You were always up to something. How, how did that, was that just the way you were? You just took that upon yourself to be that guy in the locker room that was always, this game is so hard, and, and I think you'll attest to that. This game's so hard, and it's so long, and it's every day. And, there, and sometimes there's no way to escape it. The best way to escape it is to have a good time, enjoy yourself, laugh. Uh, you know, every, Brad, uh, most teams I, I have one. That I, uh, yeah, I learned that from my pops. Uh, my dad, you know, coming from Holland, uh, there were seven children uh, in a three-bedroom house with one bathroom. I remember in Canada, you know, we had the outhouse in the back, and we had to get the water from the well. I remember that as a kid growing up. And when we came to California, we moved into a house that actually had indoor plumbing. Uh, at seven years old, I remember that like it was yesterday. Uh, my dad, you know, straightened bumpers for a living and straightened my all of our heads out, you know, when he came home from work to make sure that we stayed on the straight and narrow. But he was a great man. And But every night we sat down to dinner, Brett, he always had a joke. He always was jubilant. He just went about his life that he was always a character, more or less. And I think I got that from him. You know, when when you 
you get to the point where you have a little seniority in the big leagues and you find a way to relax uh, and you do certain things, you know, that, that your teammates will hopefully laugh with you. Uh, you know, the, the hot foots, uh, you know, other things that probably sh- I shouldn't talk about that we did, you know, just, uh, to <laughs> you, get, you get, in tr- at, you'd uh, get in trouble today. They might lock you up. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> but we had so much fun. You know, I had a, I went, we, about 12 of us went out one night for dinner and then we had lobster and I ended up, you know, buying a lobster and then becoming our pet. I called him uh, snappy and, uh, you know, he traveled with us on a road trip for a while until he bit me. And then I put him underneath the tire of uh, the bus. Uh, that was the end of snappy, but, uh, you know, we, we just had a lot of fun. I've had a little leash for him and everything. But the, you know, <laughs> you, you, know, you got to find ways to have fun uh, in the game of baseball because it is, you know, baseball is a negative game. You, uh, as a hitter, Brett, you go three for 10, you're a great hitter, but you've also made seven outs during those 10 at-bats. You know, as a pitcher, you go out there and you can have a shutout one game and get your butt kicked the next game. So you got to find ways to relax and have a fun and and enjoy the company that you have with the 24 other guys on your ball club and the coaching staff and you know that you're all having one goal in in mind and that's going to the ballpark to win a ball game that's the bottom line if you can have fun doing that and smile and somebody keeps you loose doing that god bless them i got one more from bob boone he said squeak this one in there too he said (laughs) ask bird about the uh I guess you guys were at a charity event, the George Brett bat. And he goes, he goes, Brett, it was so funny. He said, Bert's in there. And he starts bidding up this George Brett uh, baseball bat. And he, he, he said, he said, he's got three guys in the bidding and they get to eight or $900 and, and they turn to, and now there's only, only Bert and one other guy. And they turn to Bert and say, Hey, you got another bid? And you go, nah, I already got one. You moved on. True? <laughs> true or false? Uh, true. I think there was another time that I bought a bat. Uh, I think it was from Robin Yacht uh, that uh, I ended up buying the bat and then breaking it right then because I'd never broke a bat of his. So I just br- I broke it as <laughs> I, after I bought it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, why not? You know, I finally broke his bat. It just cost me some money, but I finally broke it. 96 through 2020, uh, 96, you launched your broadcasting career. As a player, and you played a long time, in the back of your mind, were you thinking, were, were, did you kind of have a plan that when I, when I finally do retire from this game, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to do it on the broadcasting side? Or, or did this something, is this something that came to you after you retired and said, no, that might be, might be something I want to pursue, uh, you know, as my second career. How'd that all I start no, for you? Cause I, I know no you inkling. went a long time. Yeah. I had no inkling of being a broadcaster. Uh, actually, I, somebody offered me to do a couple college games. I believe one of them was UAC, uh, USC, which you played for uh, up in Washington. And I went up there and did a game with Steve Fiziak. 
And I enjoyed it. And, and the president of the Twins at that time had heard I was doing some college games, and he asked me if I would do an Angel game. Tommy John was doing the games in 1995, or yeah, 1995 with the Twins. And he said, "Would you, you know, when you would you mind doing? Would you like to do a game with the uh, Twins against the Angels?" I said, "Sure, I'll try it." So I did that. I did three games, and I think what uh, probably set the tone for my career because it, I was working for Dick Bramer, which I worked with. He's a play-by-play guy for 25 years and still doing it today for the Twins. Uh, after the three-game series, he said uh, to me as a, as a final out was made, he said, I really, in, I really enjoyed working with you, uh, Big Bert. And I said, well, thank you, Big Dick. And <laughs> that kind of... That kind of led to me doing three games in Oakland. And then uh, next year, they offered me half the games to uh, split with Tommy John. And then the following year, for 16 years, I did every game for the Minnesota Twins. I enjoyed my time in a broadcast booth. It was a lot of fun. And, Brett, you know what you mentioned earlier. It's a tough game. And one thing that I tried to do throughout every broadcast is what Vin Scully did. You always find a positive out of a negative. Believe me, fans, I always looked at that gentleman that just worked from eight to five and he came home, had dinner with his family, put his feet up and did not want to hear that a $10 million player was having a bad day. You know what I mean? You you tried to find a positive out of a negative when you're a broadcaster. And I learned that listening to Vince Scully and Jerry Doggett when I grew up in Southern California. Teleprompter, you kind of made it, you kind of made it famous circling people over the years, people would, uh, you know, bring their signs to the Metrodome, especially, I know, you know, the Metrodome was, was, is no, is no more now, but you know, that's, those are my memories of, uh, people coming there, you circling them and, and kind of took on a life of its own. That was your thing. Yeah. Circle me, Bert. Circle me, Bert. Uh, Circle me, They Bert. gave me a telestrator. You know, John Madden had that telestrator in the NFL. He would do the X's and the O's or the running back and the linebackers would be playing. And they gave me this telestrator and they said, we'd like to use it in baseball. Well, I think the flight of the baseball, you pretty much see on TV. So I thought, on the seventh inning in Kansas City, they said, you know, come on, use it. So there was a Twins fan there. And uh, I circled them, and I said, well, you know, you're here by circled. Thanks for coming being a Twins fan. One thing led to another. You know, it uh, it kind of came into uh, fruition that, that, that it, it was there for a long time. And a lot of people remember me, maybe not as a player, but they'll say, you know, there's Circle Me Bert over there, you know. And my wife, a lot of times, Gail, would, you know, get people in the stands because we couldn't circle everybody. She would find a family somewhere that, you know, that maybe traveled a long way, had a sign, and she'd bring them up to the booth during the ball game, and I'd sign it for them and take photos and stuff like that. It was just a lot of fun. It was something that just out of this telestrator became something that uh, we had fun with. And because the fans are such a big part of the game, you know, we as players, Brett, when we're down there, you know, we're giving 100%. But it's the fans that, that, in 1979 and 1987, when we won the World Series with the Pirates and Twins, they were the ones, they were our 10th player on the field. And fans out there, you may not think that you mean anything, but you do. You 
in light those players down on the field. And I was watching that Chicago game last night, you know, and, and 50,000 people were raising their hands. It was unbelievable. I know those players felt that. You feel that as a player. Without a doubt. And to think of this, it all started by a, a friendly exchange when a man called you Big Bert. Now, that's funny. <laughs> he said, well, good to work with you, Big Dick. That's, that is tremendous. <laughs> all right. It was perfect. The big one, 2011. Uh, wow. You, you finally get that call. I want to hear um, at that point. It did had you given up? How, were you thinking it's not going to be this year? I've been disappointed, or or did you just have I don't know? Take me through that 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 year before you got the call and finally got inducted in the into Cooperstown. Well, I knew that I had the complete games. I knew I had the shutouts. I knew I had the innings pitched. I knew I had the maybe not three hundred wins. I had two eighty seven. Uh, you know, I knew I had the strikeouts, uh, but for some reason every year. Uh, for 13 years, my name was there, but it wasn't there as far as getting the 75%. And I didn't know why. Uh, my numbers didn't change finally in 2011. They finally put me in. Uh, maybe they eventually counted my little league and high school wins. I don't know. Uh, but <laughs> You know, the honor is there to be in the Hall of Fame. Uh, It doesn't matter if I came in on the first ballot or the 14th ballot like I did. You're you're in a fraternity that is unbelievable. You know, it's since 2011, I have been back for every induction. I hope and pray that I can be, you know, healthy enough to be going back every year. Uh, this year, you know, of course, it was a short induction when, you know, uh, Derek Jeter went in, Ted Simmons, Larry Walker, and Marvin Miller. Uh, you know, it's an honor to be part of the Baseball Hall of Fame. And, and uh, I, I, I guess that's the best way to describe a career that was a lot of fun. I worked my butt off to get there. But I think as a player, Brett, you know, when your career is done, you don't think about that until you look at maybe your numbers at the end and say, yeah, they're, they're not bad. They, they should be, you know, hopefully with the, with the elite. And uh, thank God it took a while, but uh, I am. Yeah, very cool. Burt uh, Blyvillen was known for his curveball, one of the best, especially in his day. Um, but you've been around for so long. 19 basically 1970 to 2020 you've been going to a big league ballpark uh going to work you've seen a lot of pitchers you played with a lot of pitchers give me your mount rushmore and you you can't consider yourself you're out of the equation your mount rushmore of curveballs so oh boy and you can pick you you can pick a player that's playing now well Maybe, you know, I remember a guy named Mark Clare with the uh, Milwaukee Brewers. He had a good curveball. Uh, Adam Wainwright. Daryl Kyle with the St. Louis Cardinals had a good curveball. Uh, Adam Wainwright has a good curveball. Uh, 
you know, I think the curveball was a lost art for a while. They're starting to bring it back because a lot of kids that maybe didn't have the consistency in a curveball, they teach them a slider or a cutter. Uh, I think we're seeing we're starting to see more guys with a curveball. Justin Verlander has a very good curveball. So there's there's guys out there that still have it. Uh, you know, I learned my curveball basically from listening to Ben Scully describe Sandy Koufax's drop. And I pretty much self-taught my curveball straight over the top, six to, you know, 12 to six, and then maybe one to seven, that type range. But it's a matter of confidence that you have in throwing that curveball. I always, when I warmed up on the side, Brett, believe it or not, I, I, you know, between starts, I would picture myself seventh game of the World Series. I'm up one to nothing in the ninth inning. I got a 3-2 count on this hitter, bases loaded. What do I throw him? I throw him that curveball. If you can get it over at any time, it's going to make you a better pitcher because hitters are going to sit for that fastball. So that was my bread and butter pitch, but it all keyed around the control of my fastball. And I know I'm going to say it again. There's young kids out there control that fastball, both sides of the plate, the pitch aggressively inside, down and away. And if you have a secondary pitch, get it over. You know, change-up's a great pitch. I never had a good one, but you talked about Viola. You talk, think about so Johan Santana, Brad Ratke, and the Twins' history. They've made great careers by having great change-ups. I remember those. I remember Ratke's. And Johan Santana, the reason he was so good is 15 miles off his fastball. And, and and we're as hitters, we're, yeah. And as hitters, we're programmed for eight to ten miles off. So you drop the fifteen on us, we, we don't know what to do. And Johan, for a few years, had us scrambling. Bird Levin, this was a pleasure, Hall of Famer. I appreciate you coming on the Boone Podcast. And what we do each and every show at the end, we bring Dan in for a question from the fans. Dan Levy, you there? I am here. Hi, Bert. How are you? Very good, Dan. How are you? That's big. Uh, hey, Dan, that's big Bert to you. Hi, big Bert. How are you? <laughs> hey, Bert. Very good, big Dan. Okay, Bert, this question is for you, surprisingly enough. This one comes from Ryan in San Diego. Were there any hitters who ever figured out your curveball and had success against it? Uh, not really. I, I don't think uh, anybody figured out my curveball. There were guys that I had trouble with. Uh, Ron Kittle was one. I gave up a lot of home runs in my career, 430 of them, which I'm in the top 10. Uh, I gave up 50. You know, one. Uh, I have I have a record, Brett and Dan, that I don't think anybody will break. I gave up 50 home runs in one year. I believe I won 15 ball games and led the innings at pitch, but I still gave up 50 home runs. A lot of them solo home runs, but uh, Ron Kittle uh, probably saw the best and he hit nine of the 430 but uh uh yeah it you know what you, you you try to get the fastball over and hopefully strike him out with a curveball that was my philosophy and uh you know if somebody saw it good god bless him and then i'll go to my fastball I don't own any records but i did once finish third place in a pierogi eating contest with 20 in three minutes that's all I got. <laughs> all right. That's going to do it for the podcast. Thanks so much for coming on, Bert. Well, thank you, Dan. I appreciate it. Big Dan. 
<laughs> thanks, <laughs> thanks, Bert. Appreciate it. Have a good night. All right, Brett. All right. Thank you. See, See you, bud. Bye. Mailbag. Okay, Boone. You know that sound, don't you? That would be uh, mailbag time, Dan. Hey, don't slip one past you very often there, voter. It is mailbag time. Okay, this one comes from Tom and Dallas Brett. How well do players know the rule book? Pretty, uh, pretty well. Pretty well. Uh, every once in a while, uh, a bizarre, crazy play. We've had a couple crazy ones in the postseason 2021 so far where you kind of have to think about it, maybe maybe phone a friend. But for the most part, they have a pretty good grasp of the rules. Um, and once in a while, you do. You've got to actually go to the rule book or, or talk to somebody that's really studied it, like an umpire, to give you the – the the actual rule and then it's a matter of interpretation but i'd say for the most part uh the guys know the rules pretty well okie dokie and let's head over towards the mailbag one more time this one comes from mark and kc brett if you could attend just one event what would it be Ryder cub u.s open super bowl yada 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 uh i don't attend any because that's that's a lot of work. You got to park. Okay, I've got to attend one event, just one, Mooner. I'm I'm gonna go. Um, and by the way, uh, basketball is by far not my favorite sport. My favorite sport to watch is golf. If it's a sport, I'm I'm debating whether it's a sport. I think it's more of a skill or an activity, but. If I'm going to watch one event, it's either going to be golf or baseball. Uh, the Masters, like you said, the Ryder Cup, the big ones, the U.S. Open. I love watching golf because that's my that's my hobby, uh, and I love playing it, and, and I love to watch it played at the highest level. But if I can go to one event, I always enjoyed when I was fortunate enough to get floor seats at an NBA game. That is really cool because you're down there with these seven footers and it's just a different world. It's different than I remember in high school playing basketball. And I just think it's a really cool thing that you don't get to do every day. So if I have to go to an event, I'm going to, uh, let me just pick it. You can, I can pick anyone I want. So I'm going to go to, to game seven NBA finals. I'm going to be center court on the floor. All right, and that's going to do it for this year Brett Boone Podcast. My name is Dan Levy. I'm the technical director, producer of the Boone Podcast. EP executive producer would be Rich Herrera. Digital content gets handled by Liz Landry. Please share the Boone Podcast with neighbors and friends and make sure you subscribe to the Boone Podcast so you never miss an episode of the show. And while you're at it, please give it a five-star rating. Share your feelings about the Boone Podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. For all of us here on the Boone Podcast, I am Dan Levy. Thanks for listening. 